You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. How many ways are there to get to heaven? How many different ways would people propose? Assuming you're not an atheist, you believe in the existence of deity or deities, you believe in the supernatural, not simply the natural, the materialistic, assuming that when a person dies, that there's some type of afterlife after that person's death, what happens then? Well, it depends. Depends on what religion you would align with or you would subscribe to its teachings. The Baha'i faith says that upon a person's death, their soul continues its spiritual journey, perhaps through states known as heaven and hell, but it finally comes to a resting point where it eventually is united with God. Buddhism is about reaching nirvana, a transcendental, blissful, spiritual state but it really requires you to follow the eightfold path. This includes understanding the universe, acting and speaking and living in light in the right manner and the right intentions. And after mastering these throughout different lifetimes of these eight paths, your spirit is finally united to God. Hinduism is similar to Buddhism in some ways. Salvation is reached when the worshiper is freed from the cycle of reincarnation and the spirit is united with God. One becomes free by ridding yourself of the bad karma that you've experienced and you'll go through because of bad decisions. And you can do this through different ways, selfless devotion to a particular service to God, through understanding the nature of the universe, or by mastering the actions needed to fully appease all of the gods, which is a tall task in light of the fact that in Hinduism there are thousands of gods. Islam, Muslims believe salvation comes to those who obey Allah sufficiently and that good deeds outweigh the bad. Muslims will hope that repeating what Muhammad did and said will be enough to get to heaven, but they also recite extra prayers. They fast, they go to pilgrimages, and they perform good works in hope of sort of tipping the scales in their favor. Unless, of course, they want to choose one guaranteed path, and that's martyrdom. Martyrdom and service to Allah is the only way, the only work guaranteed to send a worshiper to paradise. And then you have other alternatives like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Scientology and Sikhism. And the question really goes back to what I first asked. How many different ways are there to get to heaven? I mean, are all these legitimate options and possible ways? But here's the question. What do evangelical Christians believe about that question? 
Now, by definition, let me be clear about this. By evangelical Christian, I don't mean to recast them, as is often done today in the news outlets, as a political group. By no means am I referring to that labeling. I'm referring to the actual term evangelical, which refers to somebody who believes in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, somebody who believes in the literal virgin birth of Jesus, somebody who has put their faith alone in Christ alone, and they believe that Jesus is their, quote-unquote, Savior. How about those people? What do they believe about other religions? Well, to help us answer that, Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries have been partnering together since 2014 and asking people various questions, and they keep asking different questions every two years. These findings are called the state of theology. They ask Americans from all parts of the country, across all demographics, all different backgrounds, and they ask people who are Christian and non-Christians, what do they believe? And they basically make a statement, and then they get the person to say true or false. I agree, I somewhat agree, I somewhat don't agree, or I strongly disagree. And they have a spectrum of this. But here's one question, one statement rather. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. As it is there on the screen, that was put before an audience throughout the entire country. Now, 45% of Americans said they agree with this statement. 22% of Americans say they agree with this statement, said they partially agree with this statement. But here's the problem. It's not what Americans think. It's what do those who profess to be Christians actually think? Here's where it gets tragic. 40% of professing evangelical Christians said they agree with this statement. That God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. An additional 18% of more evangelical Christians said they somewhat agree with that statement. Somewhat? It continues. Later on, they were asked, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. 5% of evangelical Christians said they strongly disagree with that statement. How sad or tragic is this to know that people who profess to be Christian don't actually believe what Christians are to believe? There's confusion. Friends, here's my concern. My concern is not what's said in America at large or in the state of Florida in close proximity or even the city of Miami. My concern is what is said amongst the people sitting in this room at this time today. What would you say to such statements? And does the Bible confirm what you would say or does it contradict what you would say? Well, that's exactly what we're going to see in Galatians chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, where we are continuing our teaching through the Bible. And to really, as you can see even from today's title of the message, how many different ways are there to heaven? Because this is a problem. The confusion is not new to the 21st century church. In other words, today. This confusion was even true to the church in the first century. 
And that's exactly what Paul is addressing with these churches in the southern region, region of Galatia. So this is known as like Macedonian area. He writes these churches with a bunch of new Christians. And he's concerned because they keep being taught by other people after Paul has come through to teach them about other ways, other ideas, other things that they must do. And so the question is, wait a minute, is it way for some people and for different people? And he particularly talks about Jewish people and non-Jewish people, also known as Gentiles or Greeks. He's like, does God accept people differently or through the same way? And if it's the same way, which is that way? Some of the Judaizers, people who say they're followers of Christ but have go back to believing the, the law, say, no, no, you cannot be a Christian by simply believing in Jesus. You can only become a Christian by believing in Jesus and fulfilling what the law says in Genesis 17. You have to be circumcised if you're a male. And if you're not, well, then you've not obeyed the law. God's not going to forgive you and accept you. Well, Paul continues this conversation picking up where we left off last week. Let's just get a running start here. Verse 10, giving us the context for our verse today, verses 15 to 18. Follow along in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and following. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All of that we talked about last week, but that's the context. He continues now for our passage today, verse 15 through 18. He says the following. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, stop there. Breaking down this text, we're going to learn three things today. Lesson number one from verse 15 is this. What is done... What's done is done. What's done is done. I don't know if you've ever read stories of this in the news before, but every now and then you'll come across a story of a family who is contesting the result of a will. Uh, Some person has passed away, a, a relative of sorts. Perhaps it's a close person like a spouse has passed away. Perhaps a parent has passed away. Perhaps a sibling has passed away. Or perhaps a really close friend has passed away. And there was a level, understandably perhaps for some, of presumption presumption that they had that when that person passed away, they were going to receive something as just kind of a beneficiary relationship. Only to find out after the person's passed away, they're not getting anything. 
Their siblings have gotten everything. Or maybe none of them have been given anything. An organization was given everything. This is a major problem for some people. It splits families after the death of a loved one. This is a huge issue. Even in recent years, there's been some contested court battles, specifically dealing with the Jude Hospital. You've seen the commercials. Celebrities will often advertise them. The Jude Hospital is a 73-bed research hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. In the last five years, Jude Hospital raised $1.5 billion just from money received from wills. Now, to be clear, that's not always a bad thing, but some of those decisions that were made were made to neglect a family, and it was contested strongly. And often what happens in this situation, and maybe some of you even know this, if this has been a part of your own background, how painful this can be, the argument is made to the court, a judge, of how unjust this decision is, and the judge basically says, I'm sorry. What's been decided by the deceased person has been decided, and it's my responsibility to honor what's been decided. Nothing you can do can change that. That's the imagery Paul is bringing out here in verse 15. Paul gives this example. He even calls it that, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This term covenant in verse 15, later repeated in verse 17, is exactly this kind of term. It was commonly used in Paul's day to refer to a last will and testament. The kind of thing I'm talking about with you this morning. The kind of decision of what would be made. And Paul here is basically saying, hey, according to the Greco-Roman law, this is how God deals with us. He explains that a will cannot be changed once the death has occurred. The decision is final and will go to the intended recipients regardless of what they do. And that's what exactly he's saying here. He's like, listen, this is a final decision by God. Now, let me just, if I can, kind of just pull the car over and have a few moments to sort of think of the implications of this. For both those of you who are Christians and those of you who are not Christians. For those of you who are Christians, oh man, this is awesome news. Why? Because honestly, if you're like me, at some point in life, many times throughout life, maybe during seasons of time in life, you don't feel that Christian. You honestly feel like, I do not deserve God's forgiveness. I have done X, Y, and Z. And I am just honestly missing it. Perhaps it's even what's kept you away from church for a long period of time. That sense of shame and guilt. You're like, man, if you only knew what I did, I don't think you'd want me in your church. You certainly wouldn't want me in your friendship circle. But friends, the implication of this is this. A decision that God makes based on the covenant he makes is that anybody who has truly put their faith alone in Christ alone, he forgives. Not just up to that point in their life, 
but for their entire life, as we've looked at in the previous weeks. That covenant has been made, and it will not be turned away. Now, grace is so shocking that Paul writing about it to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5, gets you to the point where you can imagine some people, like you might be thinking right now, are saying in Romans chapter 6, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall I continue to do whatever I want since I'm forgiven? He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, may it never be. God did not set you free from sin so you can continue to live in sin. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to not only comfort you, but also to convict you to bring you back to him. And if you can indefinitely go on living in sin without any kind of conviction or conscience bothering you, it does raise an appropriate question, are you actually even ever in Christ? But setting aside that point of reflection, friends, for those of you who struggle sometimes with your own reality, God cannot love me because I've done too much. I think he's changed his mind and will not forgive me. Friends, verse 15 is where you can loiter this week. He keeps a covenant forever. That's hugely comforting for us who are Christians. And it's also concerning for those who perhaps are still not Christians. You might be thinking a couple of things. Number one, try to deny there's even a deity. Kind of like a little kid hide and seek. You know, covering your eyes, plugging your ears, and pretending if I can't see you and I can't hear you, you don't exist. Not going to be helpful to you. Or you might say, you know what? The whole idea of Jesus being my Lord and Savior seems a bit overbearing. I've got ideas and plans. I kind of want to do fairly well in life. I don't really want to live my life for him. And so I'm hoping by the end of my life, after I die, that I can honestly hope that, well, he might change his mind. Admittedly, I did not put my faith in Christ. I did not give my life to Christ. I will acknowledge that. I maybe self-identify as a Christian only because, like, well, I wasn't Buddhist, and I wasn't atheist, and I wasn't Muslim, and so therefore, yeah, I guess if you've got to put me with one Christian religion or one religion, rather, choose Christianity, but I'm not really truly a Christian, but I'm hoping when I die that God maybe can change his mind, like, you know what, you're a pretty good person. Come on in. We'd love to have you. It's not how this works. God makes a decision, and he doesn't change it. He doesn't change it, and he makes a decision because where you put your faith is where you put your future. So here's the question. Where is your faith? Where you put your faith is where you put your future. Where is your faith? If it's not in Christ, you have every reason to be concerned about your future for an eternity. Which takes us to the second lesson Paul teaches here. Only one person rightly inherits God's blessing. Only one person rightly inherits God's blessing. Go back to verse 16 now. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The promise that God made back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, long ago in human history, repeated again at Genesis 15, were not fulfilled, excuse me, these promises were made, were not fulfilled before the giving of the law. They were found and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The blessing of justification by faith alone is a permanent reality and cannot be changed by the law. The, the whole 
strength of the argument here is in the seed, the offspring. This is made simply to remind the, the Galatians and even us today that the faithful ones that recognize it is only one true person who qualifies as Abraham's offspring. And hear me with no intention to be offensive when saying this, it's not a gathering of ethnic people. It's only one single person, Jesus Christ. That's literally what he says here. Who is Christ? The significance of this is because Matthew would later declare in Matthew 1 that Christ would be the son of Abraham and the true heir to the first covenant promise. Now, friends, track with me on this. A couple of years ago, many years ago, I don't know, 12 years ago, how many years ago it was? I was pastoring a church in Indianapolis, and for a time, there was a guy who came to our church uh, who played for the Indianapolis Colts. One time, he and I were talking over a meal, and he said, have you ever been to a Colts football game? And I said, specifically asked the question, have you ever been to a Colts football game with your sons? And I said, I've never been to a Colts football game with my sons. He said, how come you've not? I was like, honestly, I can't afford to go to the Colts football game with my sons. I just, it's not kind of financial bandwidth that I've got right now. Buy a bunch of NFL tickets. He said, don't worry about it. He said, go to this game on this date, go to this counter at this time and tell them your name and I will have told them that you're with me and they'll give you passes of where you can sit with your sons. And then during halftime, if you want, you can come down. There's a place where the family uh, of the players come down. There's like food and stuff for them. So you don't have to worry about buying food up there. There's already food kind of provided for you. And then after the game, I can meet you afterwards. We can talk. And if you want to take your sons out into the field, we can do that. I was like, for real? <laughs> this is my son's first time at an NFL football game. So we did that. And we had great seats. We had great food with a bunch of people I did not know. And then we went out in the field. Kids even kind of ran around. It was awesome. Now, I told my sons, just so you know, it's not like this going every time I'm going to an NFL game. Once you've been to the top, like, where do you go from here? That was an incredible experience off that one game because I knew that guy. I went and gave my name that I was with his name and I was given access to all of that. What Paul's teaching the Galatians is, listen, there's only one name to give to have access to all the blessing that God promised Abraham. And that name is Jesus Christ. I can walk up to the NFL counter and say, hey, Eric Bancroft, here's my ID. Just, you know, just myself. And be like, and why do we care? I mean, do you not know who I am? No, and I still don't care. I'm a dad of three sons. I pastor here in Indianapolis. Again, why do I care? Well, this is my first time NFL game. I'm sorry for you. It's taken you this long. Why again do I care? No one would be impressed. I could cite who my parents were. I can say where I used to live. I can say where I went to school. I can, say, I can tell them the kind of things I've done. It would gain me nothing. That is something like going to an NFL football game. And yet, this is often what some of us default to thinking is we're going to try to do when we get into heaven. 
We're going to try to cite family we're related to. We're going to try to cite things that we've done, things that we've accomplished, and, and hope that God will just let us in that we get to have the, the blessings of Abraham. We get to share in his inheritance that God promised him back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He says so clearly here, there's only one person who qualifies, Jesus Christ. And if he vouches for you, you're on the list. You're on the list. But if you've never put your faith in him alone, you're not on the list. See, the problem for the Galatians was they kept thinking, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. We have to believe in Jesus and do something else. He's like, it's not how this works. It's only in Christ. Which takes us to the third lesson he wants to teach. Not only is what's done is done, not only one person rightly inherits God's blessing, but look at now back to verses 17 and 18. He says, this is what I mean. The law, talking about the law of Moses, how to, how to obey the law, of God, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is simply here in verses 17, 18, applying the, the principle of the permanence of faith by affirming the covenant made so long before could not have been altered by the law. The law being given here is a reference to 430 years later. Uh, this lengthy time being referenced is you know, debated as to when this time began. Really references being the covenant to Jacob seen in Genesis 46. Accordingly, 430 years go by for the end of that era, the age of promise, to the beginning of another era, the age of the law, when God gave the law to the people of Israel through Moses. And this seems like it represents the reality of what it was like, even for them as they're living in Egypt for those 400 years and even beyond in the time of the wilderness. But the recognition here is to recognize God had blessed the people because of a promise he made to one and that one who believed. Now to see how he makes this, keeping your finger in Galatians, go to Genesis. And if I say go to Genesis, that's new to you. It's just the first book in the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, just know that we've got them at the Welcome Center for free. We'd love for you to have one. Genesis 15 Genesis 15 is significant because it basically restates Genesis 12, the promise he's going to make to God. And you can see this in verse 5, Genesis 15. God brings Abraham outside and said, look towards heaven and, number the, and the number of the stars. If you were to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And here's the key verse, verse 6. And he believed God and is counted to him as righteousness. Here's what I want you to see this time. Now verse 7 and following. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How's this going to happen? And then this is how a covenant was made. Verse 9, this is how a covenant was made back then. 
He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down, the carcass, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, it will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with a great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, and for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, that's the verse he's quoting in Galatians 3, to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of Kenites, Canaanites, Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, now let's stop there and let me explain to you because probably a number of you are confused. What just happened? So what's happening here is God, the one who creates all things, the one we've been worshiping this morning, the one who is right now sustaining and extending your life, God speaks to and has a conversation in divine human manifestation with Abraham. One guy taking him out of his country to getting him into a new part of the land. He's like, hey, this part of the country is about to be yours and all your offspring are be so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren on and on and on, more than the stars in the sky. He's like, uh, hello, I only have one wife and we have no kids and we're pretty old. We're not having any more kids. There's not, that day has passed. And God's like, do you trust me or do you not? He's like, I trust you. I believe you. Even though I've not seen it, I believe you. And then God says, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to keep it. And then he has Abraham bring what to you might seem like, what is this, like a petting zoo? A bunch of animals are coming for it? I don't know what's happening here. In the cultural context of the time, when you made a covenant like this, blood was shed. That was a serious, sobering commitment that was being made. And then normally, two parties representing both sides of the covenant would enter into covenant that they would not break the covenant. What's fascinating though in the text though is that Abraham goes to sleep. God makes the covenant with Abraham but not conditional upon anything Abraham would do. It's a promise God makes to himself for the benefit of Abraham as it represents how he passes through the fire. And that promise, he says, is to Abraham's offspring which Paul in Galatians 3 says is Jesus Christ. So God the Father is having a conversation thousands of years ago with a man named Abraham about a promise he's going to keep through his son he's going to send. That very text we read earlier in John chapter 3 is being talked about. This way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not what? Perish but have everlasting life. Friends, you even have to be a Christian. That is the most famous Bible verse in all of the human history. People today know the Bible verse and even know where it came from. Like, I don't know, I just, I saw it at an NFL game. John 3, 16, I even knew what it meant. It was like code. I was like, guys, like, like his, his like, you know, license player or something. I don't know what they even meant. 
That's the verse it's referencing. It comes back to Genesis 15, Galatians 3, John 3. It's all being brought together for us this morning. Some of you work in law, either as a paralegal or as an attorney. Others of you watch Law and Order or the practice, so that basically makes you an attorney. What you feel like you know about the law. I get it. You're like, yeah. Feel like you could represent yourself in court if you needed to, because you've watched a few episodes, you know. All the paralegals and lawyers are like, thank you for addressing the problem we have to deal with all the time. You think about the law, though. There is a place and a purpose for the wording written when something applies and when something does not. I was just recently given notice about my homeowner's insurance. I trust it's probably like a lot of your homeowner's insurance notices. You know, gnashing of teeth, weeping, as rates continue to rise. And one thing I do every year is I like to read the contract, what exactly is covered. I want to know if something happens, what's going to be replaced, what's not. I also want to know my deductible. How much do I have to pay? How much is covered and not? And when I have to pay, how much is that going to cost me? Let's just say, friends, I could probably rebuild my house if a hurricane destroys it. It's going to be kind of costly. The words matter in those contracts. The small print matters in the details. Paul is laying out the contract that God makes, the covenant that he gives, the promise, as you can see back here in Galatians chapter 3, going back to that. He says, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Friend, if you're in Christ, your life is covered by a life insurance that has been underwritten by Abraham and secured by Jesus Christ. You can rest. You're covered. The rates aren't going to rise. And the rates were paid for not by you, but by Christ. There is no deductible. It is 100% paid by Jesus Christ, which is applied to you when you put your faith alone in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Desiring having turned from your rebellious ways and surrender your life to Christ to commit your life to live for him. That's a promise God made to Abraham and he keeps today to every person who puts their faith in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. What have we learned? We've learned that what's done is done. Only one person rightly inherits God's blessing and your life insurance has no deductible. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.